Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I'm thrilled to have Mark Gober back on the show. Mark is an international speaker and author of An End to Upside Down Thinking. He's also the author of An End to Upside Down Living, and that's what we're going to be talking about. And he is host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind? Where is my mind? Additionally, he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Welcome back to the program, Mark. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We did talk on your last um, interview about your extensive research and the reasons why you did change your mind um, about reality and the continuity of consciousness. So could you, I know it's a lot, but could you just briefly talk about talk about that again? Sure. So the, the first book and even the second book and a lot of just my overall thinking in life stems from my thinking about consciousness itself. So consciousness is central to all of our lives because it's what is required to experience life. So consciousness is that sense of being aware. Mm-hmm. So right now, listening to this conversation, watching the conversation, it's our consciousness that registers that experience. It's our consciousness that registers our thoughts. So it's always there. It's this this ever-present thing that's required to experience life in the first place. And I was shocked to learn early in my research that science doesn't understand consciousness. This thing that's so fundamental, that's required to even think about science, all aspects of science and all aspects of life, we don't even understand that very well. And in fact, Science Magazine has said it's the number two question that remains in all of science. And the way they phrase the, to to paraphrase their question, they say, how does a brain create consciousness? Or in their words, what is the biological basis of consciousness? So there's there's this assumption in the question, which is that our brain, because we know so much in neuroscience, and we know that when we change parts of the brain, our consciousness will change in a corresponding way. So let's say someone gets in a car accident and has memory loss. We can point to the parts of the brain that have been damaged and say, look, their consciousness shifted in this way and their brain shifted in this way. And there's so many examples of that. There's a tight relationship between the state of the brain and the way it, you know, it's all of its chemical and electrical reactions and our state of consciousness. But we can't conclude automatically that the brain creates consciousness just because of those correlations. And that's what I explore is maybe the brain doesn't create consciousness, it's related to consciousness, but maybe the brain is actually like a filtering mechanism of consciousness or like an antenna receiver or like your cell phone tapping into the cloud. So it's not that the brain's, it's not that the brain doesn't matter. It's just that it's recontextualized as more of a processor or like we say in my podcast, whereas my mind, like a blindfold, that the reality is much 
there's much more to reality than what our eyes and our body shows us. And we actually see a limited perspective. So that's the overarching idea that the brain is not producing consciousness. It's receiving, transmitting consciousness. And even more than that, to go back to Dr. Kastrup, the philosopher, he says it's as if we are whirlpools within a stream of consciousness, like this infinite stream of water or water represents consciousness. Lots of whirlpools might form in that stream. So the whirlpools are like individuals, Mark, Marla, each of us individually, we, we feel like we're separate, but we're fundamentally interconnected as part of this same stream of consciousness. And that's how, that's how we can explain interconnectivity, but also the appearance of separation. And that's the overarching framework that I use in my second book as well. Some call it the one mind, this idea of one consciousness. And, and Kastrup says, it's as if this one consciousness has dissociative identity disorder. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that's sort of what yeah. it's like. It's one, one yeah. consciousness. And uh, actually, the, the idea of one mind comes from Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, he concluded this after looking at physics and you know, a lot of quantum physics points in this area. He said, in truth, there is only one mind. And I believe the earlier part of that quote is something like multiplicity is only apparent. In truth, there is only one mind. So it's, we see multiplicity, but there's actually not. So that's the framework. And if we accept that framework or wanted to test it, there are a number of quote unquote anomalies that we might look at. So things that science says, well, those things couldn't be real because the brain creates consciousness and consciousness is just stuck in our skull. And what I say is, well, if there's actually scientific evidence for these phenomena, some would call them paranormal, then we could explain those phenomena very easily by looking at this one stream of consciousness where consciousness is flowing around. Sort of like if some of the water from my whirlpool gets into your whirlpool, that's like some of my consciousness getting into your consciousness. That would be like telepathy, telepathic communication. So the implication is that psychic abilities would be real under this idea of a one stream, one mind. That's implication number one. And the other major implication that I've looked at is if, if one of the whirlpools stops being a whirlpool, the water just flows back into the broader stream, it delocalizes. So it stops being like a little individual, but it's the water doesn't leave the stream. It's just transitioning into a new state. It stops being a whirlpool, it's something else. So the, the parallel there is that consciousness does not cease to exist when the physical body dies. In other words, our consciousness lives on even when our body dies. Right. So I've looked at all kinds of evidence in these areas within the realm of psychic abilities. And each of these is a chapter in my first book. I looked at remote viewing, which is being able to perceive something that's far away. It's like seeing it with your mind, both in space and time. Telepathy, mind-to-mind -mind communication. Precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens. Evidence for these phenomena in animals psychokinesis, which is mind impacting matter. And it's worth noting that these phenomena have been studied statistically. So for example, Dr. Jessica Utz, who in 2016 was the president of the American Statistical Association, she said, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well-established. So when you look at the statistical evidence, and again, another example here is that there are six sigma results for these phenomena. And six sigma means that the odds that they happen due to chance alone, when they're studied you know, over many, many studies and many different experimenters, the odds that it's happening due to chance alone is more than a billion to one <laughs> against chance. And in other areas of science, we'd say, okay, that's a real effect. So that's a lot of evidence just in the psychic realm. And what I've argued is that all that has to be true is that one of the phenomena is real, not even all of them. So that's psychic realm. And then within the 
survival of bodily death realm, I looked at near-death experiences, mediumship and after-death communications, and also children who remember previous lives, looking at the research from the University of Virginia. So when you look at all that evidence and combine it with quantum physics, combine it with the fact that we don't really understand consciousness at all in the first place, to me, the evidence converges towards the one mind. Yes. And for my listeners, you can, well, a lot of this podcast is about what you've just mentioned in terms of near-death experiences, past lives of children. You you didn't mention savants, but savants. um, And, you know, you look at the not to get political, but it's really not political, but the FBI and, and what our government government has been using remote viewing and telepathy for a long, long, long time. And it's been kind of hidden, kind of hidden from us, but there's just, the point is, is that there's just so much evidence, evidence there. So, so you, you speak of creating a compass for our lives after awakening to this new reality. And so I want to focus on what you mean by that. And I know you bring in the the life review and the importance of that, which I talk about a lot on this show because it's, it's very important. So can you just talk about creating this compass and what you see in, in that? Well, the question that I, I use in, in the second book and end upside down living to start the book is what is the overall intention of your life? Mm-hmm. And that's really what I mean by a compass. So how are we orienting our, our overall intention for how we want to live? And that's a central question to our lives because it will inform our values, our priorities, the things that we want to do, the things that we don't want to do, the decisions that we make in life. It all to me stems from our worldview and the way in which we, why we view our, why we think anything matters, why we think we exist. Those questions are fundamental before we can even live really. And when I think about my own life, I didn't, I used to think life was meaningless. When you die, there's no consciousness. We can make up meaning in our lives and try to rationalize it. Ultimately, there's no meaning built into the fabric of reality. So you could set a compass, but why does it really matter? Those, that was the kind of thinking I had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because you talk about life being random and it's just, it just doesn't make sense. You know, life can't be just events to be random. You're born, you do a few things, you die. And then that's the, that's the end. You know, to me, I just can't wrap my, and the rest of the universe isn't, isn't random either. It's very much in, um, another word I want to use, but it's, it's very much planned, I guess I will say. Um, So let's talk about the life review. And you say the little things are the big things. So what do you mean? So the life review is what happens in some near-death experiences. So a near-death experience is when a person has some kind of bodily trauma, like cardiac arrest, or they might be under general anesthesia, some event where their brain should not be capable of producing a complex cognition or memory. And yet when people are resuscitated, sometimes they report like seeing things in the room that happened during that time when they shouldn't have been able to see anything. Sometimes it's from a view above their body. 
And this is known as a veridical out-of-body experience, meaning what they experience during this period is verified as accurate by people in the room, such as doctors or family members, actually sometimes outside the room too. So in this state of when their body wasn't functioning or their brain was turned off or barely functioning at all, their consciousness was in an expanded state. And, and I preface the discussion on the life review with that because some people would say, well, the near-death experience is just a hallucination. So people might report a life review, review, but it doesn't really matter because it was hallucination. It wasn't a real thing. Like their brain produced some kinds of chemicals and then they had this vision and that's all it was. It was like a psychedelic experience or something like that. That's what the argument might be. But we have these cases of veridical out-of-body experiences where it wasn't a hallucination because when they come back, what they reported was verified as accurate. And by definition, that's not a hallucination. So to me, that's really significant because it means we should take very seriously what happens in the near-death experience state. And it also aligns with this idea that the brain is like a filtering mechanism or a blindfold of consciousness, because when you get the brain out of the way, consciousness is expanded. And you see this also, you mentioned savants, instances where the brain is damaged in some way, and yet people have an expanded consciousness, like their memory improves, their mathematical abilities improve, things like that. There's a pattern that occurs of less brain, more consciousness. So with that preface, we can then look at what happens during the near-death experience because it's remarkable. People sometimes report other realms, beings of light, deceased relatives. They talk about being immersed in unconditional love. Time becomes very funky. Um, space becomes different. Sometimes they hear music. Really remarkable things that happen. It's like an interdimensional experience. Like people are seeing a new part of reality as if they're seeing parts of the stream of water or of consciousness that they normally can't see with their brain uh, when their brain is blocking it. So the life review is something that happens. And I've, I've heard varying reports of, of how frequently it occurs, somewhere in the range of 20 to 25%, depending on which databases you look at, of, of near-death experiencers who come back and report something. They say, well, I had a life review. And the life review is when people relive their whole lives in a flash. So all the events in their life that they're re-experiencing, which is pretty crazy from the perspective of time that someone's life or even parts of their lives could be compressed in a short amount of time. And that tells us something about the nature of time and physics that has to be looked at. But also what happens in the life review is that people sometimes relive events through the eyes of people that they impacted. So if they were really nice to someone, they might experience how that made the other person feel. And on the contrary, if they were mean to someone or harmed someone or killed or physically hurt someone, they will feel that pain as if they were that person. So to your question, the little things are the big things. That's one of the themes that emerges in these life review accounts is that people see the impact of their actions toward people. And it might not be something that they even thought of at the time. Like if they were mean or nice to someone um, at the cash register and they could see how that event impacted every other person in line afterwards, whether or not they were mean or nice, for example. So we see through the life review research, the rippling impact of our actions. Whereas my prior worldview and the worldview that is endorsed by much of science would say, well, there's no one consciousness. There's no life review beyond a hallucination. What we do in life only matters to the extent that we, we make meaning out of it. Whereas here we're talking about something very different, which suggests that there's meaning built into the fabric of the universe itself, that the golden rule of treating people the way we would like to be treated is actually part of reality. It's not just a concept. I, I love that. 
it makes so much more sense. Don't, don't you feel that you can make so much more sense of the universe when you start seeing reality in this way? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. The hard part for me, and when I talk to people that are very scientifically minded, is it requires a belief that we could have such amnesia to this fact. And that's a really hard concept to get our minds around that this exists. Not only does it exist, but we know that it exists. There's a part of us that knows and the memories are somehow blocked or obscured through our body. That's, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard, but not, but. And then you start looking at the research yeah. and doing what you've done, what I've done, and you just dive into it. And tens of millions of you know near-death experience stories and everything that you just mentioned so there's there's cer certainly something going on but talking about the, the little things um how important they are one woman i know had a profound near-death experience and one thing that she was shown that was so positive and she was a ceo of a big business or something and what she was shown when she was like a 10 year old girl. And she was one of those, she'd held up the crosswalk thing and this older woman, um, you know, she helped her walk across the street. And that's what one of the really beautiful things was shown to her and then how that rippled down into, you know, this woman's life and her family. And that really touched me. I, that really touched me. So let's talk a little bit about um, reincarnation and the work at the University of Virginia. We may have talked about that a little bit on the last podcast, but I know um, you've studied Ian Stevenson. And, and so can you talk about this a little bit and how Ram Das, I love to quote him, we are all just walking each other home. That's just so beautiful. So can you talk a little bit about the reincarnation? So the, the research at the University of Virginia spans many decades and looks at over 2,500 cases of young children who usually between the ages of two and five years old will spontaneously speak of a life that is not their own. And sometimes the detail is so great that the researchers are able to find the person that the child is speaking of. Also, in some cases, the person will not only describe how he or she died in the past life, but will have physical correspondences to that death. So birthmarks or physical defects that align with the death in, in the alleged previous life. And in the strongest cases, the researchers are able to find medical records that align with what the child is describing in this life or what the, the bodily features are in this life. So there's something that seems to be transferred from one life to the next, both at the level of our physicality, but also mentally. Memories, preferences can also transfer, fears, desires. So there's something that like the water's being recycled in the whirlpool somehow. Something about the energy of one life gets into the, into the next whirlpool. That's the implication of it. And when that is combined with the life review evidence, and if we accept that to be something that's not a hallucination, then we have reincarnation and we have a life review at the end of each life potentially. What does that tell us? Is, is the reason for reincarnation for us to evolve in some way at the level of our consciousness? And I think that's, that's my hypothesis. It seems to make sense that we exist in these bodies 
to have learning experiences, to see how we can treat other people ultimately, and to see how much we can unite with this one mind, whatever the one mind's intelligence and its will is for the this physical universe, which as an individual human, it's like impossible to know all those answers. But if we can align ourselves with it and channel and harness the appropriate water, so to speak, that is flowing through us in our whirlpool, uh, then we can evolve and grow. And I want to to distinguish the evolution I'm talking about here with biological evolution. I'm talking about the evolution of our consciousness, meaning that when we, when we die, we don't take with us our house, our car, the money in our bank account. But what we do take with us is our experiences and the way in which we, we grew and the way in which we treated people. And the life review seems to be a way, at least one mechanism of seeing how that occurred. And the, the reincarnation cycle might be to allow us to have multiple experiences in multiple bodies. That just seems to make sense to me. And it also happens to align with what many spiritual traditions have been talking about for a long time. Right. In your research, have you um, studied much about pre-birth planning? That is something that has come up. And in fact, Jim Tucker from the University of Virginia has looked at intermission memories. That's what he calls them in children who have past life memories, sometimes they will speak about a time before birth as if it's like they're before they're coming into the body and a, a good number of children have reported that. It's also reported under hypnosis. So some hypnotherapists will take people back to a past life and they'll also talk about it between lives period. Some scientists will say that evidence isn't as credible, but even Dr. Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia said that in some cases, hypnosis seemed to induce things that he couldn't explain. So I give that caveat because there could be a tendency to just go under hypnosis and then whatever we experience, take we take that as 100% fact. And maybe it is sometimes, but not always. Um, but the fact that this comes up a lot under hypnosis between lives memories, I think that's significant. And also there was a case that I mentioned in my book, a man named Noah Elkreef on Buddha at the Gas Pump podcast he, he, as an adult, he had spontaneous memories of his pre-birth process of choosing his parents. And he described it as like being on an iPhone or an iPad when you can see multiple screens at once. He said it was like a million or something screens of the different lives that he could have chosen. And he saw in advance the types of learning experiences that he would have. Wow. And, and it's not like he's the only one. And once again, you know, it's, it's one case. It must mean something, but there are just so many stories and people are finally talking about these things. I mean, in the past, I mean, years ago, people would be considered psychotic or put into, you know, even psychiatric places, if they were, you know, they came back and talked about near-death experiences or, or the things you're talking about right now. And thank goodness now, at least people are really opening up and feeling safe to talk, to talk about that. Yeah. Do you find that also? I bet people come and talk to you a lot. It depends on who I'm talking to. I definitely see the side of society where there's not an openness to it <laughs> and where it starts to become too far out. And I go back to this idea of amnesia and our, our lack of understanding of memory. Even for a scientifically minded person, we have to acknowledge that there's so much that we don't even remember that we know is part of our own life, like right. living as an infant or as a two-year-old or something. Most of us don't remember so much of what happened in our own lives. So when we remember that, then it becomes a little bit more conceivable that maybe there are other things that our memory just isn't accessing. 
And that's what I'm honing in on, I think is, is the critical piece that people have such a hard time with. Because it implies that everyone listening to this conversation right now has memories of maybe a previous life or some aspect of choosing this life. Or I've also heard of being like coerced to come into this life. Like people said, okay, but you, they like were kind of scared to come in because they knew it was going to be difficult. And that happened and you don't remember it. Like that's a, it's a very hard thing to accept. (laughs) It is a big, it is a big jump. But once again, a lot of, as Bruce Grayson talks about, you know, a lot of scientific, the research begins when you don't understand. And there are so many anecdotes and so much of science does begin with anecdotes. And that's, that's where we, that's where we are with this. His, his work is, is amazing too. I just interviewed him and I know you, you interviewed him too. He's great. So what do you want to do with all of this? Okay. So you're not, you're not, really doing business anymore. Well, you are, you're selling books and writing <laughs> books and I'm sure living your life much differently. What do you want to shout to the world? What is, what do you see as your, probably your new purpose now, now in life, probably your purpose all the time, but you finally gotten, gotten to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I probably just didn't know it. At the yeah, time. exactly. Exactly. Well, I think each of us is on an evolutionary journey at the level of our consciousness to get to the highest state that we can to align Mm -hmm. as much as we can with the one mind and try to embody it while we're in this state of amnesia that to see how well we can do. So on a personal level, I think that's ultimately what I'm trying to do, whatever, whatever the output is. And so far it's been books and a podcast, and I don't know where it will be in the future, but um, I want to be evolving myself to, uh, to the highest level possible so that I can be of service in some way and not really knowing how that will manifest. But that is a big shift versus how I used to look at things. I was much more achievement focused, even though I didn't necessarily know why, like maybe the next promotion or getting good grades on something or like winning a tennis match. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those things, but I didn't have a context for why those mattered. So now if I have a goal, it's much more cosmic. And that's how that's the, that's the perspective from which I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm looking at everything I do within this higher perspective. So the goals are more meaningful for me. So how do you personally, you know, you talked to those who are really into meditation and you said you've gone on a few silent, silent meditation retreats. Um, how do you bring I find in my life, because I really don't live in a world other than my podcast, which has been amazing. I'm sure it has been for you too. It's kind of like that's your tribe, right? (laughs) At least for me. Um, But the world I actually live day to day in, this is not a discussion. And there's not really a whole lot of of interest. Um, Well, there might be interest, but that no one just really talks about it. So I feel like I have to kind of ground myself every day and remember and remember and remember. What do you do for yourself? Well, for me, I think I've been so immersed in all this stuff. It's become it's become just part of the way I look at life naturally without having to think about it so much. An analogy that I give in the book comes from the Vedic tradition of sticking a white cloth into red dye and pulling it out and allowing the sun to bleach it, but 
it doesn't bleach it fully. There's a little bit of the redness left. It might be a little bit pink. And then you stick it back in the dye and then you let the sun bleach it out. And eventually the dye becomes stronger and stronger in the white cloth naturally without having to continually dip it. So for me, my process has been like this dipping over and over again. And there are four paths in the yogic tradition. And I mentioned this, I call it the yogic tradition because that's um, some of the names come from that tradition, but they are applicable to every spiritual tradition, really. These are just certain names that are given. Um, so there's a, the pathway of knowledge and wisdom. So that could be listening to podcasts, reading books, um, studying. There is the pathway of devotion. So that could be prayer, having an overall attitude of, of graciousness. There's the pathway of energy. So that could be meditation or, or um, breathing exercises, physical exercise, probably to some extent. And what's known as karma yoga, which is selfless service. So these, these four pathways are different ways of dipping into the dye. And what I found in my own life is the more that I practice those pathways or consciously try to do things. So knowledge, wisdom, devotion, energy, and selfless service, the cloth is automatic, is, is redder in spite of the bleaching right. from the sun. Right. I love that. I, that. That's great. Well, it's time to wrap it up. And I think that's a good place to to wrap it up is there anything that i haven't asked you that you would like to you would like to talk about i think we covered a lot you asked great questions and i would go back to the question what is the overall intention of your life that's really fundamental for all of us to, to set our compass in a certain direction because everything we do will will stem from that and at the same time certain things that we used to be aligned with might not be aligned and that can mean letting go of things. And that's a very natural part of the process as we shift directions. And when I start the book, I talk about boats that are starting off at the same place. And if you shift one by just one degree, after a while, if those boats are sailing in the sea, they will be very far apart from each other. So small shifts in, in setting our compass can lead to drastically different lives. Absolutely. And I love those four pathways you talk about. Um, especially, well, all of them are, are amazing, but the one about service to others, I find in my life when I reach out and can help someone in some way who is suffering or, or maybe not, maybe just needs a friend, it just brings so much joy to me. And it's kind of, it, it helps me understand kind of my intention and my purpose even more so, you know, with of course the other three, three, yeah. but so helpful. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, hopefully I'll see you at one of these medical um, or scientific, no, let's say spiritual, <laughs> it all goes together now, right? right. <laughs> Conferences in the near future. Yeah. So take good care of yourself and we'll, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yes, thank you. Can't wait for your third book to come out. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Bye more. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.